So we're starting in the new series called Lessons from Asking God the Wrong Thing. This will be our series chapter title, beginning from the chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 of the book of 1 Samuel. One of the things that we would like to know and to learn is what is God's will for our lives? And how do I follow God's will for our lives? And what if I choose the wrong thing? And how do I know if it's the wrong thing? So today I want to talk to you about one of the lessons from asking God the wrong thing. Is it possible for us to ask God for the wrong thing? Yes, it is. It's possible. But first, why do we ask God for the wrong thing? We ask God for the wrong thing even when we already know the will of God because we think we know better. That's the bottom line of asking God for the wrong thing. It's because we think we know better. And there's one word that defines this attitude, and the scriptures call it defiance. And this defiance is the recurring theme of all the stories beginning from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. We ask God for the wrong thing because ultimately we want to live our lives on our own terms. Are you still with me? Amen. Let me break this down to you. When you read the book of Samuel, you will find them in a very unique position of calling. They were only the only nation at that time during which time, whose Yahweh is king. All the nations around them have their human kings. They have pharaohs and, and kings and emperors, but only Israel has God as king. And since the time they left for Egypt, Yahweh has been their king. In fact, Yahweh commands them on what to do. Yahweh was their king. He gives them the command in the terms of the covenant. That's what a king does. He rescues them from slavery and leads them from Egypt towards the promised land. That's what a king does. He fought their battles. That's what a king does. He gives the necessary provision for food, clothing, and shelter all in the wilderness for 40 years. That's what a king does. He even commanded them a tenth of their earning, a sort of a tax, like a tribute that's only presented to the king. That's what a king does. So when all you read all these things, there's one inevitable conclusion, and all points out to that Yahweh is the king of Israel. So beginning from the way, from Exodus all the way to the book of Samuel, for more than 400 years, Israel had no other king. But then you read the last portion of the book of Judges before the book of Samuel, it says, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Even though God was king, these people who are subject to one king is not doing according to his will. So now that Samuel is old, 1 Samuel chapter 8, he appointed his sons as judges, and the people did not like it. The people did not want to be ruled by the judges who are corrupt. This is what you read from 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning from verse 1. It says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Watch this. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, if you have been following the sermon, this is almost the same thing that happened with the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord, and yet they were corrupt. They were taking away what, what, what's God's, uh, the portion of God. 
the two sons of Samuel did the same thing. The two sons of Samuel were perverting the justice of God. But in the first place, they should not have been made judges because they are not qualified for the job. But who appointed them as judges? Their own father. Their own father, Samuel, appointed them as judge. If there's one thing that we can learn from here is that nepotism doesn't work. The office of the judge was never a family franchise. That means appointing sons, especially when they're not qualified for the job, especially when they're not godly, is definitely wrong. In the same way, we can say the church leadership, the ministry standards must be upheld. There's no amount of spiritual gifts or eloquence or academic degrees that will qualify us to serve in the ministry if we but fail in one standard of God, that is holiness and compassion. The next thing you find is in verse 4 that leads to more corruption. It says, Then all the leaders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now watch this because this is very crucial in this story. Let me tell you why this is wrong on many levels. Why this innocent, seemingly innocent request was wrong on many levels. First, obviously, Yahweh is king. For you, for the Israelites to ask for another king means we don't like God as king. We want another king. You see, this is neither an innocent request or a practical one. Just because Samuel is getting old and his sons are disqualified for the job. This request for a king is an issue of defiance. How so? Because the qualifying clause to this request was the phrase, Give us a king like all the nations. You find that in your Bible, in all the translations, there is this clause, like all the nations. What they wanted is, they wanted a king just like all the nations around them. And let me tell you why this is wrong. Because the role of the king in the ancient world, whether it's in Egypt or Mesopotamia or anywhere else, the role of the king carries with it a sort of divinity. A king is given an almost sort of divine status. When a king is crowned, he gets the crown, he gets a scepter, he sits on the throne, he's more like God. And so if this is the king that they want, they want to replace God as king on the throne, and they want to put a human king on the throne. Do you see the problem here? So this is the reason why God did not like their request. Their request was wrong from the very beginning. The reason why Pharaoh uses title of divinity, he sits on the throne, he has a scepter, is because he has divine status. Fast forward to the New Testament. The Emperor Caesar has the same status. Emperor Caesar, son of God, son of divine. Divine. So when you say king, when the people said we want a king just like all the nations, we want a king just like Pharaoh, we want a king just like the king of Assyria, just like the king of Persia, like, like the king of Nebuchadnezzar, we want a king who will rule over us, not Yahweh, but another human king with divine status. Now look again at the tone and motivation of this demand. 1 Samuel verse 19 and 20. They said, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now this is very interesting, because if you can recreate the scenario, 
you will see that the people are doing two things. Number one, they're asking God for the wrong thing because they thought they knew better. Why would they ask for a king? Just because they thought they knew better. They were asking God for the wrong thing because they thought they knew better. God is not doing a good job, so a human king will do better. It's like looking around to all the nations in the world, and they're probably saying, God, look at all the nations. It's working. They have kings. It's working. So we also want a king. Give us a king. And secondly, they were asking God for the wrong thing because in reality, they want to live their lives on their own terms. They wanted a king to fight their battles. Now think about it. Isn't it what God has been doing for the last 400 years? Since they left Egypt at the time, they went to the promised land, to the time that Joshua has led them to all the battles, to the time of Samuel. Isn't God leading them and fighting them for them in their battles? As a matter of fact, the whole book of Judges, the whole 21 chapters of the book of Judges, is all about God fighting for their battles. God was fighting their battles. So why was the Israelites asking for a human king to fight for their own battles? What are they really asking? What seems to be the motivation behind asking God for the wrong thing? Let me tell you what. This is nothing but another apple. When people ask God for the wrong thing, they're asking for another apple. What do I mean by that? Think for this for a second. Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, forbidden tree, and God said, don't eat. And what did the couple do? They ate. The terms of engagement is very simple. Do not eat anything you can eat except this one. And yet, they ate. Why? Because they think they knew better. They want to live their lives on their own terms, become like God, have the ability to choose for themselves what is right and what is wrong. That's the purpose of the apple. Of course, that's an apple, but this is like an apple. See, they want to have the ability to decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. There's no word for this except defiance. What the people did in time of Samuel was nothing more than eating another apple. Isn't what we also do when we reject God, when we reject His will, isn't this what we do when we start thinking that we know better than God? We, we, we can say, Sally has a boyfriend, Megan has a boyfriend. I want a boyfriend too, right? My classmates sleep around, my coworkers sleep around. I want to sleep around too. Isn't this what we do when we think we can live our lives on our own terms outside of God's rules? Listen, to see yourself under the rule of God is to yield every inch of real state in your heart. There must be nothing left in you. God must be number one in all things. Because God is king. If God is king, that means you are not in charge, even of your life. Because every decision that reflects self-determination contrary to God's will is an act of defiance. This is nothing but another apple. Listen to the voices on the streets. My body, my choice. See, my body, my choice is not a political statement. My body, my choice is a theological statement. Those who believe that arguing, in arguing from this is arguing from a moral perspective. Because what gives value to my body? What gives value to my choice? And on what basis do I determine what has value and what doesn't? 
This is an issue of morality. Value is about morality. The scriptures give us perspective. The scriptures said we are created in the image of God. That's why we believers believe that it's not just your choice. It's not just your body. We are given value because we are created in the image of God. And if God gives us the value, then it's not your choice, is it? If my body, my choice is a theological issue, your body has value because God tells you you are valuable. Then how you live your life and the choices you make matters to God. So whether it concerns your personal choice of spiritual or of sexual partner or your choice of pregnancy, they matter to God because we live under God's terms. See, whether we like it or not, Yahweh is king. That's for a fact. Whether we do drugs or get drunk, whether we sleep around or just live our life in pursuit of whatever that makes us happy, there's only one consideration. Is God king? And if God is king, he is in charge. And if he's in charge, what am I doing? So how do you think God took this cute request from the people of Israel? Was God like, sorry, good people of Israel, this is your God speaking. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I have not met, made, I have not met your expectation as king. Please receive my humble resignation. P.S. In the meantime, you are in charge. Is that what God said? No. God said, verse 8, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. They have not rejected me. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as God over them. I don't know about you, but it sounds like to me that God is very disappointed with Israel. He was so disappointed that he explained this in a way in the context of idolatry. He did not reject you, but they rejected me as God over them, just like how they rejected me from before. On a personal level, it sounds like a betrayal. But in a national level, this is called treason. There's only one appropriate punishment for treason, and that's death by execution. And you see, this did not happen for the first time. Do you remember when the Israelites just met God at Mount Sinai? They were so happy God met with them. God gave the Ten Commandments. And then God said, you are now ready to enter the promised land. So send 12 spies into the land and check for yourself what's in there. And so Moses selected 12 spies from 12 tribes sent into the promised land. And when they came back, they came back with a checklist. Land, land flowed with milk and honey, check. Very fertile land, check. Raindrops, check. Everything is checked except giants. So the 10 spies said, there are giants in the land. The land is good, but we cannot fight the giants. We are like grasshoppers. We cannot fight them. We will never win. And so the 10 spies went to the streets, <coughs> excuse me, convinced the people that they are not able to enter the land because of the giants. And the whole nation rebelled against God. This is what it says in Numbers chapter 14, verses 2 and 4. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You know what grumbling means? 
That's grumbling. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or that we have died in this wilderness? Here's the question. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Are you kidding me? Look at this. Is the whole purpose of bringing them from Egypt just so that they will fall by the sword in the promised land? Why would God go all the trouble of the ten plagues in Egypt, of humiliating Pharaoh, of splitting the Red Sea, of bringing them into the wilderness just so that they will be killed by the sword? It doesn't make sense. And so they said, would it be not better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What do you call it? It's treason. They decided to choose a different leader because they know that the only way that they would not be forced to enter the promised land is to choose a different leader, not Moses, because Moses obeys God. We don't want Moses, we don't want God, we want to choose a different leader of our own who will lead us back to Egypt. This is nothing but treason. This is exactly what the people asked Samuel. Give us a king, a king who will fight our battles. They didn't want to fight the giants. All they wanted to do is a promised land without struggles, without compromises, without giants. See, this is like discipleship. Discipleship without denying yourself daily. Discipleship without picking up your cross. Discipleship without following Jesus because they know that following Jesus leads to a certain death. The cross. See, the post-pandemic Christian doesn't want the cross. The post-pandemic Christian believer is content by watching worship service online. Think about this. If all the churches today remove the lights, the coffee bar, all the instruments, remove the visual effects, will you still go to church? If all the churches today remove the summer camps and the Christmas parties and the potlucks, will you still come to church? See, we come to church not because of the benefits that we can get. We come to church because God is king. Because if you can stand in line to watch a concert, you can stand also while singing the songs for God. If you can come to work, show up for work on time, why should not? I should stop there. <clears throat> See, this is just like another apple. As God warned Adam and Eve, of the deadly consequence of eating the tree. God also warned the people of Israel if they want the king. This is what it says from verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord, and the people were asking for a king from him. He said, this will be the consequences. This will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Now, I underlined the phrases so that you know the emphasis of this. One, he will take your sons appoint them to be his chariots, to his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards to give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Now, this is very clear. You want a king, but you shall be slaves. And in that day, there's a PS, 
you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But that means that the Lord will close his ears, will not respond to any prayer on that day. Let me teach you something cool. The word for take in Hebrew is lakak. You don't have to memorize this. It's a funny word, lakak. Did you know that this is the same word that was used in Genesis chapter 3 when Eve saw the fruit that's good for food? She saw it with desire and she took lakak. Same thing. Did you know that it's the same word that David used when she saw Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop? He saw her and he took lakak. What's wrong with this? God seems to be saying that this king will take you as his slaves, just like how Eve and, and David took what is not supposed to be theirs. I think this is pretty clear. The consequences of their demand for a king was clearly laid out. You shall be slaves. That's the fine print. They know the consequences, but they think they know better than God. See, when you buy a new cell phone, there, there's a, and you register it, there's a fine print. Terms of agreements. You have to go all the way to the bottom and click, I agree. This is the fine print. You have to agree. You're asking for a king. This is what the king will do. You shall be slaves. Here's how it went. Verse 19. After having said all those things, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. What? And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, these are not kids. These are the people, grown men, representing their own families. These are grown men who are capable of understanding their decisions and the consequences of their decisions. And yet, they collectively decided to ask God for a king. And their reason is not personal, it's not practical, it's not political, it's theological. See, there's a collective decision, and their reason was theological. What is it? It is this unfounded assumption that real happiness can be had when I determine for myself to live the way I please. And it's the same thing for us also. When we know God already, when we know what His will is, and yet we ask for something that's contrary, we do that because we want to live in our own terms. The way I please, I want to be myself. I want that freedom to choose for myself how I please. There's an old lie that's propagated in our culture that it's okay to try and fail. Have you heard that? It's okay to try and fail. We are encouraged, in fact, to try and fail as much as we can in order to learn the lessons in life. The more relationships we can have, we can try before you marry, is better. If you're doing an experiment, you see it's okay to try and fail. But if we're talking about life and lives of people who depend on us, if we're talking about afterlife, then it's not okay to try and fail. Because we only have one life, and that is precious to God. Now imagine yourself this. Imagine yourself on a plane in a mid-flight. And then, ding, ding, announcement. And the voice said, <clears throat> this is your friendly stewardess. This is not your captain. The both pilots are incapacitated right now. I will try to land the plane. Don't worry about it, because my high school coach said it's okay to try and fail. <laughs> 
See, if God has already given us the wisdom on how to choose friends, careers, priorities, if God has warned us about hell and eternity, why do you still feel the need to try and fail? You don't have to try and fail. So beginning from the first king up to the time of exile, all the kings in the book of Samuel, all the way to the Chronicles, have failed the standards of God in terms of justice and righteousness. You go through all the kings in Israel, they all failed. Because there is no right king that can replace God and what he did for Israel. No one has done a good job. Not Saul, not David, not even Solomon. Why is that? Because this position of power is so exclusive that God is that determined not to share it with anyone. And why is that? Because God knows that Power in the hands of imperfect men corrupts. It's true then, it's still true now. But then God is determined to show the Israelites that even though he gave them the king, he did not step aside as king. He continued to sit on the throne. He continued to rule from heavens to earth. He continued to sustain the creation. He remained faithful to his people. Even though we have presidents, we have kings, we have dictators, it doesn't mean God is not in charge. God is still king. Would you say amen to that? With conviction, please. Amen. God is king. Amen. Yahweh is king. I think what people wanted was good. It's just that no human king is fit for the job. Only a human king, only a human divine king is fit for the job. And because only God is qualified, he finally appeared in person. Born of a virgin, born among his people. The Hebrew word for Messiah is king. The Greek equivalent for Messiah is Christos. So when we say Jesus Christ, that's not his last name. That is king. Jesus the king. This is actually the confession of Peter. Who am I? Some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Isaiah, some say you're John the Baptist, but who am I? Apostle Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the king, the son of the living God. See, the people had no problem with Jesus as healer, an exorcist, sometimes a social worker, a teacher, and as king. They don't have. In fact, they're waiting for a Messiah king. But their idea of a king is different. Someone who will fight their battles. That's their idea of king. And when we say battle, they don't mean spiritual battle. They want someone who will fight against Rome, the invading power. That's the king that they want. In fact, this is the rationale behind the question of Pilate to Jesus. So Jesus was arrested. He was brought to Pilate. The first question was, are you king? Pilate wants to determine if Jesus is a threat to the throne of Rome. And Jesus said, yes. And even in fact, after that, Pilate went out to the people and said, I find no guilt in this man. Why so? Because he knows Jesus is not that sort of king. But the people demanded his execution because he did not fit the bill. We want a king to fight our battles, real physical battle. As a matter of fact, there was so much contempt for Jesus that the people demanded this immediate execution. Capital punishment is reserved only for the worst of sinners, for those who committed treason. So the question is, did Jesus commit treason? But, well, by claiming you are king, you're committing treason. How do we know that? 
Because before that verdict, Pilate went out and said, you know, there's a sort of a, a sort of tradition that during the Passover, I release one prisoner for you. Who would you like to be freed? Barabbas or Jesus? Now, this is in John chapter 13, verse 38. It says, But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, No, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. Now hang on for a second. What is a robber? The Greek word for robber is leistes. Leistes is correctly translated as a rebel, a zealot, not a petty thief, but a revolutionist. Barabbas is a revolutionist. He's fighting against Rome. So they chose Barabbas over against Jesus because Barabbas will pick up the sword to fight Rome. Jesus would not. Do you see this? They have no use for Jesus. Jesus can teach the scriptures. So what? We need someone to fight our battles. Jesus can heal the sick. So what? We want to f- someone to fight our battles. Jesus can exercise demons. So what? We want someone to fight our battles. They want Barabbas instead of Jesus. Why was Jesus rejected? Because Jesus did not fit the bill. So they took Jesus, flogged him, put a crown of thorns on his head, put a purple robe around him, and they beat up Jesus. And when it is done, Pilate went out of the crowd again and said, maybe they will have mercy on Jesus, looking at this. But it's sort of a mockery. And so Pilate said, behold your king. Listen to how the people responded. This is how almost the people in Samuel 8 responded to Pilate. John chapter 19, verse 15. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Let me translate it to you. Shall I crucify your Christ? The chief priests answered, we have no other Christ but Caesar. Because Christ is king. Are you seeing this? The priests are saying we have no other Christ. King, Messiah, but Caesar. Caesar is not king. See, the chief priest is the dude that's representing the whole nation of Israel. This is the guy who knows better the scriptures than all of them. This is the guy who probably have read many times from Genesis all the way to Malachi. This is the guy who goes to the temple once a year to mediate for the people. This is the guy who knows the will of God. And yet he said, they said, we have no other king but Caesar. It's an outright rejection of Jesus Christ. Not even Yahweh is king. Caesar is king. Make no mistake about it, Jesus did not reject Jesus because he healed the sick or he fed the poor or he raised the people from the dead. None of those things. The people rejected Jesus because he did not fit the bill, a king who will fight our battles. They rejected Jesus because he did not fit their idea of a king. You see, everybody loves Jesus, right? Muslims love Jesus, Mormons love Jesus, Hindus love Jesus. The Buddhists love Jesus. Even some Satanists, Satanists love Jesus. Palm readers love Jesus. Some voodoo practitioners love Jesus. Christians love Jesus. But the moment we define who Jesus is and his demands are, then people begin to make excuses. That's not my Jesus. That's not my Jesus. And that's, that's why 
people are confused why we have different religions because we have different conceptions of who Jesus is. See, the Mormon Jesus is not the same as the evangelical Jesus. The liberation Jesus in the South is not the same as the evangelical Jesus. Who is Jesus really? What is his demands are for you? But the Bible said, Jesus is king. That's who he is. He is the divine human king. You see, the people loved the idea of going to the promised land but refused to fight the giants. The people loved the idea of Christianity, inclusive of blessings, abundant life, and eternal life, but refused to, to read the fine print. Here's the fine print. What does it mean to really say Jesus is king? Here's the fine print. Luke chapter 14, verse 27, and I would like you to commit this to memory. This is what he said. Jesus said this. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A lot of people are saying, I love Jesus, but I'm not his disciple. I only love Jesus because of the blessings. I only love Jesus because of what I get from him. I don't like to follow him. Why would I? I already committed the... I already confessed. I already prayed the sinner's prayer. I'm good to go. Anytime. Discipleship is another matter. See, here's the fine print. Discipleship is a condition when you said yes to Jesus. We did not just believe in Jesus as Savior. We also decided to follow Jesus as Christ, as King. Because the mark of a true believer is his response to the call of discipleship. If you're saying you believe in Jesus, you must be a disciple of Jesus. And if you are the disciple of Jesus, Jesus said you have to bear your own cross. Come after him and follow him. That is the condition to discipleship. You see, we have correctly assessed the problem. We need a king who will judge and fight our battles, but a different kind of battle. We need a judge who's not corrupt, who is really the standard of righteousness and justice. We need that. And Jesus fits the bill. But Jesus is not fighting our physical battle. Jesus has fought another battle, another battle that we will never win. There's a battle that we cannot win. Right after the verdict, this is what Jesus did. John chapter 19, verse 16. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic called Golgotha. If Jesus is king, and this is his battle, what does this mean? See, it says bearing his own cross. John did not make a mistake of using the phrase bearing his own cross. Think about this. Do you honestly think that if Jesus is the Son of God, he has power over the wind, the sea, and the storm, he has power to heal, to heal the sick, to raise the people from the dead, to forgive sin. If Jesus is so powerful, did he really go to the cross voluntarily or against his will? Because if Jesus is so powerful, he can always say no. No to the Roman centurions. But he said yes, because this was his battle. The battle that we can never win is to fight death. No one has overcome death. Save Jesus Christ. The march to the Golgotha with bearing his own cross is a fight to the death. That is overcoming death. The proof of overcoming death is the resurrection from the dead. 
No one has really resurrected from the dead. No one has said, after three days, I will rise again. Only Jesus Christ, as king, he fought the battle over death, and he won. You see, if there's any lesson from asking God the wrong thing, it is this. Be careful of what you ask for. Seriously. Because in this life, we only have one chance to make it right with God. We don't have nine lives. We're not cats. The choice to make it right has a shelf life, and it's expiring by the minute. And if you think, I'm still young, I can still make, you know, I can still try and fail. Think again. Can't we not learn from the pandemic? It just takes one case of flu, and you're dead. It takes one car accident, and that's it. It takes one case of aneurysm, and that's dead. Life is fragile. Death can happen anytime. Why do we have to try and fail? If God is, is talking to you right now, He's telling you, do not gamble with your life. Do not take a chance with eternity. And there's only one appropriate response to this. If Jesus is king, surrender every inch of your heart, your mind, and soul, and declare that Jesus is king. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to close your eyes, bow your heads. As we go through this, as the music is being played, I want you to concentrate on this. I want you to internalize that phrase, Jesus is king. What does it mean to my life? What does it mean to say for me that Jesus is my king? Or... Jesus is not yet my king. I don't know this Jesus. I don't know if I can trust this Jesus. And the Bible is very clear on this. Jesus has fought dead. No one has fought dead and won. We're not sure of what happens after this life. But Jesus knows. He promises resurrection from the dead. If God is convicting you right now, if God is talking to your heart, and He's telling you, surrender your life to Him. This is what you should do. You can pray this prayer. Jesus, I know that you love me. I declare that you are King. I surrender my life to you. My heart, my mind, my soul, my body. And from this time forth, I will follow you. I will bear the cross and follow you to death because I believe that I, the way I can only earn this life is through death. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross for me. If that is your prayer, my friend, let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for lives that you are changing, for convictions that you are giving us. Truly, the Holy Spirit is the one who moves. We cannot, we cannot convict people. We can only talk about your gospel. We can only carry the message. But we believe, Father, that your Holy Spirit is the one who can talk to us in the most personal way. Would you talk to us in the most personal way right now? Talk to us, Father. As we surrender our lives to you, would you look upon us? Would you show us how we can show to you as well that you are indeed our King? Jesus is King. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And God bless you.